Hello, everyone. This is Erica Spicer Mason with Becker's Healthcare. Thank you so much for tuning into the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. I'm pleased to be joined by today's guest, Dr. John Bloom, the CEO of Podometrics. Dr. Bloom, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much again for joining us. Erica, thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to have you today. And before we get started, I wanted to know if you'd like to share just a little bit more about yourself, your role, your organization, whatever you're comfortable sharing with listeners. Sure. Uh, so my my background's a little bit all over the place. Some uh, some biochemistry, a little bit of bad uh, musicianship, and then went to medical school to learn to be an anesthesiologist. Um, spent a little bit of time in medical device, but uh, eventually, it's so funny. You know, anesthesia we work on the airway, heart, and lungs. I became romanced or obsessed with the problem of diabetic foot complications, which is as far from the airway as you probably can get. And I just remember spending whole days in the operating room at times doing nothing but amputations where you're just, you're, you're almost forgive the, this is, this is a little bit hyperbolic, but a, a conveyor belt of, of civil war medicine, right? This, this run of patients. And it, it just struck me as how, how could we be catching them so late that they need to see us in the operating room? And that led in, uh, when I started business school to just try to learn the language of, of the business world around me, probably the second or third month of school, we founded the company and that more or less ended up taking over my time there. We, I dropped that after a year and we founded Podometrics, a company now focused on trying to eliminate diabetic amputations in, in some of our most vulnerable patient populations. It's something that's um, been an exciting thing to be a part of. And now to get to see the needle move, amputations reducing costs being curbed, it's been a very exciting uh, time for me. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Dr. Bloom, for sharing your background. I love hearing the story of how people got to where they are. And it sounds like there's a lot of passion behind yours. So really thrilled that you're here to talk to us today. So just to give our listeners some context right at the top, what are you seeing right now as the top challenges in supporting preventive care for patients that are living with complex diabetes? I think there's one main complication, with a challenge with has many challenges within it, which is it, it's still social determinants of health. And I think we've we, we've come a long way to embrace and understand their role, but I still think these challenges need to be better mitigated. It can be things like, and, and there's no easy solution. That's why they they persisted. Uh, uh, access to healthy food, housing security, transportation barriers, social isolation, health literacy, all these, of course, play an enormous role in the development and outcomes of complex, of complex patients. And of course, we see it most in some of our traditionally underserved populations, including uh, Black and Latinx communities. And I think while we're, we're getting better at recognizing that disparities here exist, I think we still struggle sometimes to take action to address the shortfalls and connect patients with the resources that they need to avoid things like what we care about, amputations and, and complications of diabetes, but many other complications are across the, you know, the many organ systems. I think in the beginning, you know, when I trained 10 years ago, I, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to say it. I, I was trained to label many patients in front of me as poorly compliant. In fact, we would even say you're a 56-year-old male, history of poor compliance, and where the error was we presumed it was they just weren't complying with our will. Like even the word is almost arrogant when really they often couldn't afford the medications that we had, we'd ask of them. They couldn't get to the pharmacy regularly to get them. And I think we just need to do a better job of continuing to ask the right questions and then finding the right support, which isn't always a pill. Sometimes it's a way to get to the pill or in a number of ways, get better food, et cetera. 
Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Bloom. I really appreciate how you outlined that. And I completely empathize with in the past referring to patients as poorly compliant. I have a background in health education and a lot of the patients I worked with were diabetic. And that was certainly a term thrown out there all the time by myself included. And now as we're gaining a greater understanding of the social determinants, definitely um, we know it's much more complicated than just that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why has this particular patient population not been more fully prioritized considering all these complications and the medical costs? And what do you think really contributes to them being seen? I should say still being unseen today. Well, in many ways, complex patients have so many organ systems involved and they all interact with each other. And I think we still struggle to, to attribute spend or to try to find root problems that drive many of the complications we see. It may be a heart attack, but it could be some other complication, for example, that drove to the heart attack. So it's like really focusing on where are big costs coming from and what are those root causes that are driving most of them? You know, I think, for example, patients who are at risk of diabetic foot complications, you might see them present as increases in things like heart attacks, strokes, CHF exacerbation. But here it is when it was a large uh, Medicare study that was done maybe about two years ago that showed that when you had an open wound, the, the, the complication that leads to amputation if it isn't addressed quickly enough, that you were three times more likely to be hospitalized for circulatory diseases. It was like twice as likely for heart attack, stroke, CHF, and even twice as likely to be hospitalized for, for kidney injury and a number of other problems. So it's it's often this, in, in this case, an inflammatory bomb that goes off in the foot that's driving these other ones. And unless when you're looking at administrative data, it's often difficult then to try to piece together what's the causal problem, right? You're just seeing a bunch of coding here and it's difficult to click in better to see it. What that essentially means is here we've had this patient population, a patient with complex diabetes who's at risk of diabetic foot complications. And I don't think the healthcare system had has recognized just how much avoidable spend is here, avoidable. As much as a third of the total cost of care has been shown to be uh, eliminated here. But instead we might do, well, let's do a hypertension program. Let's do a, a heart CHF program and not recognizing that many of these things are linked to a patient that in just the United States, we, we spend about 65 billion each year to care for this patient. The small patient population is a very expensive one. And in this patient population, you can start to see what are the causal complications that lead to many of these other disparate complications. Yeah, definitely. Everything that you've said really gives a case for drawing more attention to this issue and ensuring that while it might be complicated to kind of come to these conclusions through the data that you mentioned, just with terms in terms of cost of care and medical outcomes, sounds like this is a really important issue for folks to pay attention to. It is. And, and, and one other just quick thought, I think one of the challenges that we've had, you know, there's about when, when we move to ICD-10, uh, you know, there's a lot of extra granularity in the coding. And I found that in this case, it, here for our patients, it, it, it didn't it didn't do what it was intended to do. We now have diabetic foot complications buried amongst 200 codes and health plans or health systems. You only manage what you measure. That is not an easy thing to measure. And 10 years ago, when we were talking to health plans, many of the national health plans would actually say that diabetic foot was not a problem. It's not until you send them those codes and they run them and they interpret what they mean. They're very intuitive once you get them that they recognize in this case, they were spending over four or 5 billion on just diabetic foot complications. So in many cases, until we get better at 
creating code sets that are easy to track and measure. Many of these, it's not probably just diabetic foot. There are these enormous problems that are sitting there that just aren't boiling to the surface, even though they're driving enormous amounts of spend. And of course, morbidity and mortality for this patient, which is the most important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's actually a great segue into the next question I wanted to ask. So you mentioned how code sets, you know, really honing in code sets that can better identify and help payers and providers manage this condition. That sounds like a, a good goal, but I'm wondering if you can also say how else payers and at-risk providers can really drive improved outcomes for this population. But I, I think we're, we're getting better at, at data science, or not just in healthcare, everywhere. That, that's been such an explosion. Uh, uh, I feel like at every concept I've gone to, we've talked about AI and um, machine learning. But I think we need to do still a better job about putting in predictive algorithms. And, and this is machine learning. This isn't even like the, the greatest and most recent of AI uh, technologies. But trying to find you know which patients are at most at need, equipping them with home-based monitoring systems or, or technologies where they're in the home that can detect things when they happen, as opposed to waiting them for them to be seen in a clinician visit whenever that happens to be scheduled. Um, and then, of course, we, we still need to do a better job about making sure that we get better representation in clinical trials for these patients. You know, it's interesting as we look at where the clinical data is, it's largely in patient populations who are often more aff affluent or in regions that are more affluent than the many of the patient populations that we have to do much better care on. And I think we just have to do a better job. And this isn't a new storyline, but we have to do a better job about enrolling the very patients we we, we, we have to care for the most in these trials so we best understand how to care for them. I'd say in addition, though, you know, I think often you know, we have, uh, it's about trust. It's about creating trust. So we have to do a better job about creating, let's say, human-centered strategies for better, better member-focused interactions to help build that trust. And I think it, it, can, it can lead to sometimes counterintuitive uh, decisions. Like for many leaders, this could include you know, making workflows uh, uh, to, of course, this part's not unobvious, and to retain good talent, but also to prioritize things like member satisfaction and problem solving, even at the expense of traditional KPIs, you know, such as call times and volumes, right? You can get the sense that, you know, if you're a call center, you're managing to those, you might underperform on some of these things that actually make a huge difference in a patient's life. And I remember one example in particular, uh, um, you know, PillPack was another company that came out of uh, uh, our, our class, and I got to know the co-founders quite well. And, and at one point, I remember, maybe I was being a bit of a jerk, I was asking, like, well, why doesn't everyone just copy what you're doing? You know, they were mailing pills mm -hmm. to everybody. And he's like, no, you don't get it, John. It's like CVS would look at this member and say, why, you know, why, why would I overnight the medications? That Look at the cost of doing that. Like, that's an expensive thing. We'll get it to them this way. It's like, PillPack, we'll, we'll overnight them every single day of the week. That patient needs those meds. That's the service that they would want to have. And once we did that, they basically, per him, they were able to pick up larger and larger populations by really focusing on that satisfaction, even if it was more expensive to do so. And I think that that, that culture there was a key spot in how they were able to improve outcomes uh, by, in some ways, leaning against these traditional KPIs. I, I would also say that, that the community can be a powerful ally for the work that we do. You know, working with community representatives helps health plans and, and, and healthcare companies understand the touch points that matter most to the very patients that they serve in this region. And I, you know, one 
probably great example of this is thinking about the role of faith-based organizations. You know, they are the ideal partners for making a big impact on education and building connections in many of the communities that are most hard hit by social terms of health or even just some of the areas where we see the, the greatest spend. You know, churches, temples, mosques, and other religious institutions are are really strong fellowship hubs. And probably the, you know, one of the most exciting examples I saw of this was XL Health, maybe about a, a decade ago, built a, a special needs program. And they found that was the best place. You know, he the CEO told me told me it was mostly on the you know, churches in the South to enroll patients who are in need, to tune them up, make sure they were on an ACE inhibitor, these little steps worked with education. And of course they had really strong outcomes and had a really impressive program. So I think just working better working with the community is a very powerful tool that we still uh, can better leverage. Well, thanks, Dr. Bloom. What I really like about what you've outlined is it's much more than just providers and payers adopting new technology, you know, predictive algorithms, as you mentioned, that is it sounds like that's certainly a component with a lot of potential, but it's it's much more than that. It's such a holistic approach that seems to be needed here with better representation in the clinical trials, creating trust in those human-centered strategies, community strategies. Um, it, it's There are a lot of angles <laughs> that they have options to hit at this from. Yeah, I'd love to be able to say that a single technology unlocks the entire mystery, but it really, it's all of us working together to provide the right time, that right call at that perfect moment for that patient to drive care. And you know, we're, I like, I like to think of us as a key spot of that, that program, but it's just mm-hmm. the one part. There's a lot we need to do. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. So before, you know, we close out here today, I want to respect your time, but I also do just want to hear a little bit more about how payers and providers can reduce costs of care for this population at the same time. I know that's going to be top of mind for so many leaders who are listening. Um, so any final thoughts that you have there would be great. Well, certainly improving outcomes often leads to a, an improvement in costs. You know, If you can prevent a hospitalization, that can be considerable. And I'll, I'll use our tech as a quick example, but it, it's one of the many technologies that we have available to help patients who are dealing with complex care. You know, For our system, for example, uh, we had showed and worked with Kaiser that we were able to pr- reduce 71% of amputations in a, in a population that was in the, the, the mid-Atlantic states. Um, that alone, of course, comes with good cost savings. And by the way, I should say the population that we care for there was mostly Medicare, Medicaid. I think two-thirds were Black Americans. So it's a population that Kaiser had done a lot of work to build brick-and-mortar presence to help serve. What we showed, though, is, you know, again, as you think about what, what's the causal problem that we were in that population, we were able to drive reductions in hospitalization by 52%. ER visits reduced by 40% and outpatient visits by 26%. Um, that was surprising a lot of people, especially if you ask what hospitalizations were avoided. You know, uh, Just under half, 48% were diabetic foot complications. No surprise, it's a system we build is looking to prevent that lower extremity amputa- or, uh, complications. But just over half, the top four DRGs were myocardial infarction, stroke, CHF exacerbation, COPD exacerbation, right? So you can prevent the big inflammatory bomb here. You have very significant decreases in spend by reducing hospitalizations, ED visits, and the two tend to go together hand in hand. And I think, you know, by investing in preventative pathways to connect with unseen populations before they become extremely ill, it's just still crucial to contain spending. So fostering better outcomes and breaking the cycle of health disparities in these communities. 
you know, I think the right systems are coming out, the right programs are coming out. It's just now bringing them together to get it to the patients who need it most. And that is our way to, to drive the biggest impact we can and in the populations we care for. What an excellent note to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Bloom. I can't thank you enough for your time and your insights today and really making this such a nice and well-rounded conversation. So thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me, Erica. We'd also like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Podometrics. You can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckershospitalreview.com.